the screen, if not, so you can sit back and I will read it and the words will also appear there. But let's explore something that Paul had to say about hope. And we're running through from the verses that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks. So those of you who've been paying attention, obviously everyone in the room might recognize the beginning. So Romans 5, starting at verse 1, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then if you're following this, jumps forward to verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul has some interesting words there about hope and suffering and challenge. I mean, what is hope? There's a, a book, a secular book written by a lady called Joanna Macy. She's, um, she's from the Buddhist tradition, and it's a book called Active Hope. And she defines hope as the feeling that things are going to get better. And that is hope, isn't it? It's, it's the need for us to know that everything isn't grim, that perhaps there is good news ahead, times might turn when we're in the midst of challenge and tough stuff. It is the hope that things might change. I took my dog up for a walk up in the hills yesterday and um, it got interesting weather yesterday, wasn't it? It's like we were actually in a cloud and, and I did stand on the golf course not so far from here and I couldn't really see anything. It was just cloud. And hope is, the, is, is when we know that the cloud will shift, that we're in the midst of storm or mist or rain or dark days, but hopefully things will move on. The question is with hope is what do you do when you actually don't feel that? What do you do when it feels like actually it's been raining for quite a long time? It has been raining for quite a long time here, hasn't it? Yeah, it does feel a little bit like, like this. People, my, my mother came to visit the other week. She said, is it always this wet in Brighton? I was like, oh, I don't really know. Sometimes we have seasons, we have spells where it just keeps raining and we keep hoping for something better. And maybe you have moments of sunshine, but then the rain just comes back and it feels relentless. Sometimes the news just feels full of doom, doesn't it? Some mornings I, just, I turn it on and then I turn it off again because I just think, no, it's too much, it's too difficult, it's dark. What do you do when you feel like you're facing challenge on all sides and hope just doesn't feel like something you can assume? In, in that book, Joanna Macy, she offers this very helpful uh, problem, problem, I can't say this, problemometer where you can, you can grade. I think this is helpful to us all if we're having any household catastrophes this week. You can use this to grade from like no problem at all through slight problem, definitely significant problem, severe problem, through to absolute catastrophe. That's like running out of tea bags or coffee, I think, in my household. But so what do you do when, when you actually sit down and look at your situation? If you are honest, things feel pretty bleak. 
And hope is one of the most powerful human emotions, human experiences. But of course, the counterpoint to hope is despair. And again, as a psychologist, I know that despair is recognized and written about as being one of the most powerful and difficult human experiences. So just as hope is really powerful and supports us and keeps us going, despair is one of the most dangerous emotional states. Despair is when you feel that hope is gone and you feel this overwhelming powerlessness. You're in dark stuff and it's difficult, but you also feel like there's nothing you can do to change your situation. It can feel like a truly profound darkness that can just descend like that cloud I ended up in yesterday. It is, of course, any Harry Potter fans in the room, what J.K. Rowling based her depiction of the Dementors on, this thing that sucks any sense of positivity out of you, that makes you feel overwhelmed with the difficulty and the bleakness of what you face. And, I mean, to be honest, we have been in tough seasons, haven't we, as a world recently. We have faced challenge after challenge, crisis after crisis. And many people that I talk to talk about the challenge of feeling this sense of bleakness, like the world does not feel terribly rosy and cheery right now. When we look at the news, it doesn't feel like there's lots of things that fill us with hope. You know, I I, I was a child growing up in the 90s. Everything sort of felt so hopeful then. The Berlin Wall had come down, everyone was getting on better, it was all going to be good. Now I bring up my kids and I think, blimey, it feels pretty bleak for them. I don't know if anybody else ever feels like that. And I think in difficult seasons, what we can end up doing is kind of occupying ourselves with an endless treadmill of activity. Because if we stop for long enough to think about what's going on in our own lives, in the world, that the risk of that sort of despair bubbling up can feel really overwhelming. So it's like, right, come on, keep busy, head down, let's just keep thinking positive and carry on. And, and as long as we don't let ourselves think, we'll be fine. But it's exhausting living like that. And some in these last days, weeks, months, I bet I'm not the only one who has sometimes just felt exhausted when you turn on the news and just think, oh, it just feels hard. And what's really interesting is Paul's letter written thousands of years ago recognizes the reality of those sorts of times. What he talks about when he talks about suffering is a Greek word that literally refers to times when we feel hemmed in. We feel trapped by situations that surround us. We're under pressure, but there's no way out. There's no magic solution. We can't change the challenge that we're under. All we can do is try and figure out a way to live under and through that difficulty. So whether that's global pandemic, thankfully we've moved on from that, or whether it's financial challenge, or some of the seasons that we will all have experienced in life, whether it's long-term illness, or a bereavement, or a tough spell in work, or, or just that brutal moment when it's like your children may never sleep again. And you just think, how am I going to get through this? I can't solve it. I can't make it go away. And what Paul says is there are seasons in life when all we can do is endure. So literally, it's head down. Keep putting one foot in front of the other and kind of hope that things lift and just get better. 
Now, our culture often tells us that in those sorts of moments, under the weight of difficulty, despair is inevitable and despair leads to illness. It's not a very positive story, but Paul, he seems a bit nuts, to be honest. He tells a different story. He talks about glorying in those times. And he talks about a way that that kind of challenge and suffering and endurance doesn't lead to collapse, but instead it grows character. Now, an interesting little aside, during the pandemic, I was officially banned by my children from saying that anything was character building ever again. So I'm definitely not saying that, but Paul does. So it's not me, it's Paul. And what he's saying, which is really interesting, because he's capturing something that we do know about the human brain, there's something about tough times. If we're well supported, if we feel confident and capable enough in ourselves, that when we hit those really difficult moments of challenge, we're forced to dig deep. And we discover something. We discover something in ourselves. But also maybe we discover things in other places. We discover a depth in our family, in our friendships, in our relationships. And and those things get us through. Literally, Paul is right. It develops our character. It develops our maturity, our ability to hold those tough times. We start to find a hope, perhaps in the most unlikely of circumstances. It reminds me of a, of a moment that actually was just coming out of lockdown. Um, it was literally the day before my son went back to school. So he was, what, eight, nine? Can't remember now, that when, however old he was then. And I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I suddenly realized that he basically hadn't worn shoes for about three months because it had been locked down and the weather had been good. And none of his shoes fit. Literally, he had no shoes. So I did what all good parents do in moments of crisis. I um, ordered things on the internet. And, and I ordered a pair of school shoes, a pair of PE shoes, all fine, until the day before school when we're packing his pee bag, and I realized I have made a basic rookie error. I had bought lace-up trainers. Lace-up trainers. No? Okay, well, so my son, please don't judge me, but my eight-year-old son had never tied a shoelace in his life. So he came to me clutching these shoes with a look of abject horror on his face. He's literally full-blown panic on the problemometer. He was like, catastrophe has hit. So what did I do? Well, you know, like all good parents, again, I thought, can I, like, Amazon Prime some Velcro trainers by tomorrow morning? But no, I'd miss the date. So I'm thinking, how can I do it? How can I rescue him from this terrible catastrophe that he's in? And then I realized there's another way. So I sat him down, I calmed him down, and we went on Google, and we found some very good YouTubes for how to tie shoelaces. Who knew? There's actually a really simple way to do it, which I had never learned. Anyway, we sat down, and it took a little while, and there were some tears and some panicking, but the outcome was that he learned to tie his shoelaces. So what did he learn in that moment? I mean, he learned to tie shoelaces. To be honest, he's still a bit ropey on that now. And he's 11, so there we go. But he learned also that sometimes when we're overwhelmed with the challenge that we face, actually we're more capable than we think. And he learned that maybe sometimes there's resources that he could call on that could get him through. And that's a really good illustration of what Paul's talking about. Sometimes we hit tough times and and we discover a depth. Interestingly, there's a, uh, there's a network of brain regions 
which is, is quite complex, but um, it's often referred to as the hope circuit in your brain because certain actions, certain things you can do, reaching out for, to other people, finding connection with people who can support you, practical things you can do to try and problem solve, those things activate this circuit. And it's called that because it seems to really lift people's mood. It makes you feel better. But also, interestingly, it actively inhibits despair. Paul has grasped that sometimes when we hit tough times, we grow our ability to challenge despair. We get better at holding hope. And the key thing then is that not only do we hold help for ourselves, but we become better at holding it for other people. So this is a fantastic part of our sort of emotional resilience toolkit. But the thing is, those things aren't the same as what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about this real lasting hope. The language that he uses talks about hope defined as a certainty, not just the sort of vague optimistic chance that things might just lift if we're lucky, but a real sense of certainty that he plants and roots himself in a knowledge that something good is coming. And honestly, I don't think that with, without God, I, I think we can't really have that as human beings. I can teach people in tough times, and I did in pandemic, teach them all of those practical skills, the stuff you can do that lifts your mood and can get you through today. But do I teach them to do that with no hope of things actually improving? No, real hope has to come from something else. And, and again, I, if I'm honest with you, I listen to the news and I look at the world around me, and if my hope was entirely in humanity and human leaders and politicians, I might not feel that hopeful. What Paul is saying, though, is that there is a deeper source of hope that he has learned transforms his life. That book by Joanna Macy says this, when we face the mess we're in, we realize business as usual can't go on. What helps us rise to the occasion is experiencing our rootedness in something much larger than ourselves. And of course, Paul's experience is that he's learned his hope is rooted in something bigger, better, beyond humanity completely. It is hope anchored in God and in a knowledge that in what Jesus has done, that God has died for us, he's resolved the darkness that we're living in and created this eternal, invincible hope that we can utterly depend upon. So that's all very cheery. We can sort of go out into the day and feel full of that lovely hope, except... Let's be real, because it's awkward, isn't it? Because we do still live in the presence of darkness and difficulty. And, and if we're honest, as I've said, sometimes that darkness feels really heavy and tough. Maybe you've experienced the relentlessness of a situation that hasn't changed. You know, you prayed and healing didn't come. The financial despair that you were in didn't lift. Maybe the dreaded consequences did happen. So how do you hold hope then? Even right now, some of you may have picked up on the news, even the church feels in a bit of turmoil and despair right now. I've had people say to me, like, how can you join the church at this time when it's all in such a mess? How can you hope in something like the church when it seems to be so bewildered by the challenges it faces? How do we hold hope then? 
earlier in his letter. It's the chapter before, chapter four, if you're looking. Paul reminds us of the hope of a, of a very famous father of the faith from the Old Testament, a guy called Abraham. Now, if you're not familiar with Abraham's story, he was called and he left everything in a moment. He left his land, he got his family and everything he owned and, and left and moved to a new place because God called him. And God made this promise over him that Abraham would become the father of nations, that he was going to be this incredibly significant man because his descendants would be numerous, more than the stars in the sky. This was part of God's future plan. It was an amazing prophetic promise. The only awkward fact was Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have children. They had lived their whole adult life and this had never happened for them. They'd never conceived and now they were getting old. And you'd think when God made that promise, like all the nice Christian paperbacks, they would immediately, she would fall pregnant, problem resolved. But no, The story is actually quite a tense one if you read it in the Old Testament because the years continue, like she's not getting any younger, and and God keeps repeating this promise, but she's still not able to fall pregnant. And honestly, I think if you read that story, Abraham does have moments where this despair kicks in. He's quite creative in trying to find a way around it. He even has a child with his uh, servant. It's like he's looking for a loophole, like maybe I was supposed to do something to make this happen. There's a point in the story where Abraham, where God repeats the promise, and Abraham literally laughs. He's just like, this is so ridiculous. Like, how is this ever going to happen when Sarah is so old? Spoiler alert, they do have a child. I mean, so often God comes through and it's not quite the way that we thought. He probably thought she'd have like triplets or quadruplets or something. She's just the one child. But through that child, something really significant begins. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of what follows. But Paul directs us to Abraham as a really good example of what it means to hold hope. This is what he says in Romans 4. He says, against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed. Against all hope, in hope, he believed. So he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, and Sarah's room was also dead. But he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is defiant hope. This is hope that holds somehow, even in the presence of stuff, that is really tough. And hope isn't black and white. Too often we talk about it like faith. It's something you either have or you don't. And we look at ourselves and think, frankly, I do not have that today. But actually, hope is a much more grey sort of thing, it, it, it ebbs and flows, it comes and goes, and we see that in Abraham's story. He wasn't like unfailingly hopeful, like one of those really annoying positive people. He had moments where he struggled, where he wandered, but time and time again, he made the right decision to live a hope-oriented life, to trust God, to keep on going with the knowledge that God had called him. And so he is this example of hope. 
Paul elsewhere writes some very famous words, which you might have heard. It's often read at weddings. It's from a letter called 1 Corinthians. This is from chapter 13, 11 to 12. And he talks about, he says, when I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Hope, like so many other things in life and in faith, it's a process. It's part of our maturity. It's something that we grow, we get better at it. I've got an 11-year-old and an 18-year-old in the house who, frankly, at the moment, are driving each other completely crazy. I hope that one day they will stop shouting at each other. But I was chatting to Leah, my 18-year-old, the other day, and I said to her, "Um, you are the older one of the two. You have to be, and I was about to say the adult. And I said, well, not quite the adult, but definitely a bit closer to that than you have currently been being. Don't tell her I said that. We grow and we journey in these things and we get better at holding them. And often it's tough times and challenge that grows our ability to do this. But it's not easy, is it? Hope, believing in light in dark times. Paul there, he uses this word. When he says we see a reflection, he uses a word which is the root of our word, enigma. There's a mystery sometimes about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. There's a mystery in how Abraham, against all hope, somehow managed to hold hope. But something in that is the truth of what God's love gives us. It's a defiant hope. But it's not based on denial. It's not based on being those really annoying type of la, 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 everything's all great Christians. It's a a defiant hope that is based in confident hope. Because we know somewhere in our hearts that God's got this. Even though the lights have gone out and we suddenly feel plunged into darkness, we know the path because there's this spiritual instinct in us that says this is okay. There is more going on here than what our eyes can see and our physical human abilities can perceive. It's a spiritual instinct that we need to pray for and we need to develop, and it's part of our growth. Paul tells us in the verse from Romans 5 that we started out with today that this hope is poured into us. So you don't have to develop it by some kind of sheer force of will and denial and irritating, incessant positivity. This is a gift that comes from the Holy Spirit, from outside of you. And Paul says in that passage from 1 Corinthians, this is something we learn because of our personal experience, because of stuff we've been through and God got us through. And every time that happens, yes, we learn when we've dug deep, we've found a depth to ourselves and our relationships and other practical things, but we've also learned about a depth to our God because we've learned that God is bigger than we thought he was. We've learned that even when it feels like there is no hope in human terms, God can still be working. So we hold hope in light even when we're in the middle of despair and darkness. God's hope doesn't deny or gloss over darkness. We have to learn to hold this paradox. We might be in a place where things feel really tough. We might be sitting with people who are going through tragedy or pain or suffering. But at the same time, we can hold the reality of a hope for them, for us for the world. Paul says, now we see in part, but one day we will see 
in full. This is a hope that doesn't disappoint, not like human beings who can let us down so often. It's a defiant hope that can hold even in the worst moments. So I want to take a moment just for us to, to pause and respond to that. Because we, we believe in this place that God is real, the Holy Spirit is real. We have had <clears throat> experience of a God who really can bring us through. But we all have moments where, like Abraham, we waver, we struggle, we wonder, what's going on, Lord? Are you going to sort this out? What's going to happen? Where is this going? How can I hope for my children? How can I hope for the world? So in a minute, I'm going to invite those of us who, who want to pray for that defiant hope from, from the Holy Spirit from outside of us, I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me and we'll pray for that. So, so be ready. Because Abraham's hope changed the world. The fact that he was able to keep going, to keep orienting himself to hope even when he struggled. And I believe that in this time, there's nothing that this world needs more than people who are prepared to stand against darkness, against cynicism, against despair, and be, be able to dare to defiantly believe in hope and to believe in God and stand up for the things that really matter. I had a, a moment, it was actually in pandemic once, where I had woken very early, worrying about everything, and, and I was lying in bed and it was still dark, and I was listening to the birds singing, not, not the seagulls like you guys have here. They're, they're quite loud. We're kind of getting used to it, but when we first got here, that was a shock. Anyway, but to the sort of beautiful, the bird song of dawn, it was spring. And I was lying there, and I just suddenly thought, it's dark. Why are they singing? It's not flipping dawn yet. I was cross because I'd woken really early. And then in that moment, as I was praying, it was like God said, yeah, but they know it's coming. The birds sing for the dawn that hasn't yet come because they know it's coming. So they celebrate it with all their hearts, with all their song, because that's what they're oriented towards. That's what they're certain of. And that's what we need to learn to do for ourselves, for our kids, for our families, our friends, but also the people and places that we're called to that we connect with. I also think there's some people that God really wants to specifically speak to today. If you are facing some circumstances that do feel really difficult, if you're struggling with that sense of bubbling despair, maybe you're on that treadmill and you are increasingly tired, but you don't really stop because there's stuff going on that's really difficult, I would love to pray for you. And we're going to stand together so no one will know like why you're standing. But if that's you, come and grab me or Rich or we have some prayer team after the service, and uh, we would love to pray for you. But for now, I am going to ask you, if you are up for being part of this defiant hope, would you stand with me? And I am going to pray. I'm already stood, so I don't have to stand. And I'm going to pray for us all. And if the band could come back, we will then have some time to worship and focus. And I would encourage you just to say to the Lord, what, what are you asking of me? What does it look like this week? At the beginning with the kids, we talked about some of the practical things we can do to hold hope, to lift our mood, to help other people in tough times. Maybe there's something practical that God is calling you to today. But for now, Lord, I thank you so much that you are the source of our hope.
that you are our help in times of trouble, that you are light in the darkness, that even though we live in dark times, we do not live as children of that darkness. We live as children of light. And so I borrow some other words from Paul as I pray for us all and say, may God, the fountain of hope, fill us to overflowing with uncontainable joy, perfect peace, and defiant hope as we trust in him. And may the power of the Holy Spirit continually surround our life until we radiate that hope to the people and places who need it so much. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>